Hello, everyone. Welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports here at the Chocolat, uh, Harlem, USA, with my co-host, Jamal Murphy. Jamal. Great to be here with another legend. That's right. That's right. We have a uh, tremendous, uh, it actually is a legend. I mean, you'll say legends a lot of times. You know, people will say that to me. You said that to me once. You? I said, this, yeah, don't even start that shit with me. But, no, this is really um, somebody who uh, is, is a pioneer, a legend, a great human being, a great guy. I mean, that's, I think that's the most thing. But, anyway, our guest is George Raveling. Uh, George Raveling is, uh, I, wanted, I don't want to butcher your title, but you're the head of global marketing. For Nike, that's Direct, the head of di- director of international basketball. Of interna- yeah, international basketball for mm-hmm. Nike. Uh, but that's his latest gig. You know, beyond that, he's been a head coach. At the first of all, he played at Villanova. Mm-hmm. Um, he played at Villanova. He was assistant coach at Villanova. He was a head coach at Iowa. He was a head coach at USC. Washington State. He was a head coach at Washington State. Not in that order. It was. Yeah. It was first. It was Washington State Washington first. State first. Iowa. Then Iowa, Iowa and then, then USC. Then, then USC. So anyway, George, welcome, welcome to Bill Road North Sports. Yeah. Uh, you were in town uh, for a great uh, event on Wednesday, Cipriano's. Uh, you were given the award from the National Association of Basketball Coaches, and um, it was a great event. I mean, a who's who of basketball coaches was there. Um, you were, but you were inducted, not but you were inducted to the Naismith Hall of Fame. In 2015, yes, and then 2013, you were uh, you were given an award by the Hall of Fame, but it was a different category. 2013, right, right, John Bunn Award, and then uh, year it's kind of been running in a little bit in succession. I first was the Lab Check Award, and then the College Basketball Hall of Fame, and then John Bunn Award, and then the uh, Naismith Hall of Fame, and and then this uh, NABC honor. So I've been a little bit on a roll. Honor, honor roll, a big roll. Yeah, but but anyway, welcome to the show. It's really, it's really uh, an honor to have you on the show. We, you were gracious enough. I really just caught you at the end of the at the end of the affair, and I said, uh, George. I mean, we do a podcast. Can you come in? But that's basically been your thing, man. You've been so helpful to so many people, and that's probably what the what the message that came across Wednesday when everybody spoke was basically. You were so open with your time and and with your um, you know with your advice, and so you know again just deep appreciation. What what what's that about? I mean, where does that come from? Um, is that something that you were just born with, or is it something that as you got older you began to to learn about giving and you know? I think a lot of it comes from my parents and particularly my grandma and. Uh, and when I was nine, my dad died. And when I was 13, my mom had a nervous breakdown and was institutionalized. And so now the question becomes, what do you do with George? And so my grandma worked for a white family in Georgetown, and their daughter was head of the Catholic Charities in D.C. And so she said, uh, I think I can get him in a boarding school up in Pennsylvania. And so from that time on, I, I attended this Catholic boarding school up in state Pennsylvania, a little town called Hoban Heights, Pennsylvania. And, and so uh, most of my formal education actually has taken place through the Catholic religion. I went to a Catholic uh, a, a school, grade school, high school, college. And, and I, I think that 
along the way uh, those people who who were principally responsible for my education instilled in me that uh, the, the idea that that we're all put on earth to, 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 sh to serve up each other and 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 so um, the the I think relationships and people skills was something that's sort of come natural to me. And and uh, there's so many people that have been responsible in my life to get, help get me where I, I am. And and so I, 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 I would say it's probably a, a little bit of God-given uh, talent and the rest is just things I've learned along the way. But if I had to do the journey all over, I wouldn't change one step of it. You know, one of the things uh, that people probably don't know about you is in August 1963, everybody knows that, you know, there was a march on Washington. Mm -hmm. Dr. King gave probably one of the three most historic speeches in the history of mankind mm -hmm. that we know that have been recorded. Yes. And you were on the point. You were 26, maybe? Yeah, I was about 26 yeah, years old. Yeah, I was about, about 26 years. 26 years mm -hmm. old. You were on the podium. You were on the podium. So Dr. King finishes this speech. People are going absolutely insane. You're going to describe the scene for. It. Then as he goes, explain what happened. What happened after that? Well, I guess the, the initial question is, how did I get on the podium? Well, that, 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 was, that was my question. question. Well, yeah. well, I was going to get there, but let's, yeah. well, let's start there. How but did you I started get off as the uh, I was a security guard, and they had. Uh, a strong security up around the, the podium because there were a lot of celebrities uh, uh, that were in attendance and they had an organized manner in which they were going to get King off the stage or if something happened and it was a, uh, an emergency and he had to be getting the, the removed because of some demonstration, th there was a back exit way that we were going to get him out of there. And so... Uh, at the end of the speech, uh, as you uh, rightfully uh, uh, framed it, it was a magnificent talk, and um, and so as Dr. King uh, f uh, finished and started to fold the speech, as he walked away, I just said, I don't know why, just impulsively, I said, Dr. King, can I have that copy? And he turned and handed it to me, and just as he did, the rabbi who was doing the benediction uh, caught his attention because he said, Dr. King, that was a, a great I have a dream speech. And then King's attention now focused back on, on the rabbi. But what's interesting ab about the, the speech is that the, the, the original intent never included the I have a dream phase of it. If you see the original manuscript, uh, everyone went, uh, that all the speakers were limited to five minutes, and they told every speaker starting from nine thirty in the morning on that if you violated, they were gonna they were gonna shut the mic down, and so and and the five minute limitation is one reason that James Baldwin didn't speak because he wouldn't change his speech, and, and they didn't want anything that was very exclamatory because they didn't want to get the crowd out of control, <laughs> and they made John Lewis change his uh, uh, four or five different times, wow. and so what happened as as, you, as if you trace the the, the dialogue. As King gets toward the close of the speech, uh, and it, if you were able to turn the sound up loud enough, you can hear a female voice in the back say, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And mm. that was the great gospel singer Mahalia Jackson. Oh, wow. She had been in a lot of the King uh, 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 
speeches and, and demonstrations. And uh, she had heard King do it in Selma and Detroit, so she was familiar with it. And, and it obviously, as it is today, was certainly a favorite of hers. And so then King, at this point, because he was the last speaker, began to ad-lib the speech, the I Have a Dream part in. And the speech had no title, and but it, the media kind of gave it the title. Afterwards, when the leaders went to the White House to meet with President Kennedy, when he walked into the Oval Office, uh, President Kennedy said, that, he said, Dr. King, that was a marvelous uh, I Have a Dream speech. <laughs> and so the media picked up on it and put this title on there. But, uh, but what's interesting, it didn't have a title. And the I Have a Dream part was ad-libbed in. Wow, so that's not there. So when you look at that original copy, yes, yes. all this about I Have a Dream, that's not yeah, in there. No, it's not in there. That's incredible. That's yes. even more incredible. Yes. I mean, because that was true. So, so well, you were there. Now, what were you, you were 26. Where were you at the time? I mean, what at, were the you doing time at the time, I was living in Philadelphia, and I was working for uh, Sunoco, Sun Oil Company, and as a marketing analyst. And 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 uh, my uh, my best friend at the time was uh, Warren Wilson. He lived in Claymont, Delaware, which is right on the border of Pennsylvania and Delaware. Having dinner in his house on a Thursday night, and his dad was a very prominent dentist in, in Wilmington. And he asked us if we were going to go, and we said no. And he asked us why, and we gave him a, you know a little adolescent excuse we didn't have any money in that. So he said, well, I can fix that. So he gave us one of his cars and some money and said, you, you, you youngsters need to be there because this, this is something historic. And, and as, as you know, it was the, at that point in history, it was the largest gathering of black folks in the history of America. And so we went, got down there Friday night and found a, pl a motel uh, room. And, and then we... we, uh, we drove down that night just to get our bearings and we ran into a guy when we were walking around he asked us if we were coming the next day and we said yes and he said would you want to volunteer and we said for what and he said to be security guards and so we said yes so he said we'll be here the next morning at nine and we got there at about eight an hour early and he said wow you guys are early well we're going to need extra security up at the podium oh, wow. so he signed us up to the podium and that was how uh, we we wow. got that strategic security position how, how, what made you ask for the speech at the end i i have I, I would love to come up with some really exotic answer why people ask me time and time again it's just impulse i i have no idea why i did it and what was interesting, or is interesting maybe, is that I had it for over 25 years, and no one knew that I had it. <laughs> My wife didn't even know I had it. Right. And when I was a senior at Villanova, uh, my senior year, there was a, 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 one of the better All-Star games was an East-West All-Star game that was uh, sponsored by the Shriners, and it was held in Kansas City every year. And so I played in that game, and so... Part of the activities uh, for the players was that they took us all out to Independence, Missouri uh, to meet President Truman. And his office was a replica of the uh, Oval Office. So when we walked in, I noticed to the right along the wall there were t uh, two tables that had giant stacks of books. And so after when we finished the meeting with, with uh, President Truman, uh, he... he uh, he said, I got a gift for each of you. And, and so on the way out, he personally gave us 
two uh, two volume uh, of of a book that he had just written on the presidency. Oh, wow. And so and 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 they were all signed to the players. And so mine says to George Raveling from Harry S. Truman, and he has wow. the date on it. And so I put the speech inside of the uh, folded and put it inside of one of the books <coughs> because I knew I would never throw the books away. Because how many people have a, an, a, right. a, an autographed copy right. from the president? Right. And so it was in there for well over 25 years before anybody even knew that I had it. And then when I got to the University of Iowa, uh, uh, during the first week I was there, there was heavy media coverage. Because it, for one, I was the first black coach in the Big Ten and first black coach, basketball coach at Iowa. And so at that time, most of the, the major newspapers in the United States still had a Sunday magazine supplement. Now, the New York Times is one of the few papers that still does it. But uh, so they were going to do a cover story on me. And, and, and then the, the uh, reporter asking a variety of questions, he asked if I'd ever been involved in the uh, civil rights movement. And I said, well, kind of. And he said, well, explain. And I, then I explained about the March on Washington. He said, oh, my God, you have the copy of the speech? And I said, yes. And so uh, he said, well, where is it? And I said, it's down in the basement in some box because I had moved I just moved in and I hadn't unpacked the boxes so he said let's go down and look for it so we found it uh -huh. and I thought the guy was gonna gonna he, uh, he was starting to hyperventilate I thought <laughs> he was gonna faint so then he said oh can we take a picture of it and that was the first public utterance that I had it and then things calmed down for quite a while and another 20 years go by and and then finally, uh, somehow it got out publicly that I had it, and 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 I think part of it was because we had Martin Luther King Day, and so then I started getting calls from the media asking, inquiring about it, or radio talk shows and so forth, and so at that point, uh, once it became public, and and that uh, well, obviously uh, there was a great interest. Some people wanted to try to buy it. And so my wife got nervous, and so she said, hey, uh, you're going to have to move the speech out of the house and right. put it in a bank vault or something because you travel so much, and I don't want to be here in the house and somebody try to break in the house and make sure you let everybody know it's not in this house. Right, right. So, that, so we moved it out of the house, and, and it's been the bank vault ever since. What, what, what impact, let's go back to that, that moment, though. What impact did that have on your life? Sometimes... Sometimes things may have an immediate impact on your life. A lot of times, gee, when you're young, it, it, it's sort of like a, it resonates over a period of time. But, but what impact did not just having the speech, but hearing the speech, being there, what impact did that have on your life? And maybe the better question is, how long did it take for, for that to have an impact on you? I think you captured it accurately in the beginning. It took a, 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 a wealth of time to really realize uh, what it, I was truly experiencing at that time at 26 years old, you know, and I'd always been a great follower of King. I tried to, whenever he got to Philadelphia, which at the, those time I was living in Philly, and um, Anytime he'd come to LaSalle or Temple or Penn or anywhere to speak, I'd go to hear him because I, I, I just mm. sat in, in awe of him as an orator. Mm. And I started collecting cassettes, tapes by him and reading about him. 
And uh, but I think it took a, a, a quite a, a few years for me to really understand uh, the historic significance of it. And one time I heard Malcolm X speak, and he said that in person. Yes, and he said. Uh, that uh, history is best situated to record all man's deeds. And so I think uh, what, what Malcolm was really saying is that history it, 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 it will ultimately put things in their rightful perspective. And it took history to put this whole uh, concept of the March on Washington, uh, King's uh, contribution with the I Have a Dream speech into its historic context. And, and so uh, we must remember it was, it was 50 years. Uh, and, 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 and then finally USA Today and other publications decide that uh, it's one of the three uh, most uh, prominent speeches in the, in the history of the United States, I, or maybe in the history uh, of the world. I know that they, the, one, the article I read had King at Kennedy's inaugural address, Churchill's speech to, to the uh, British people and, and the Gettysburg Address, and so that's heavy company there. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we weren't there. We weren't at the Gettysburg yeah, Address. Yeah. We, uh, uh, so, so now you're, you're 26. Now, five years later, Dr. King's assassinated. What, what impact did that have on you? You're 31. I think I... Uh, uh, I shared the sorrow and 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 uh, and grapple with the, the 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 word why why did all this happen, um, and 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 to have him leave this earth at such an early age. If if you really put his 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 uh, the movement into uh, its historic context, he did all of this pretty much in about 22 years. Uh, he, and, and so, um, I think it initially, you, you, garner up a lot of emotions, hate, you, 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 uh, you, you, you but it, at, at the same time, I think it, it motivated you to, 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 to want to be a stronger participant, to continue to try to fight for those things that he, 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 felt were relevant and uh, and so I mean maybe early or early in the when we began you asked about sharing and, and commitment I think I think that's had a subconscious effect on me also to to try to to uh, to give back to society to try to help people I, I'm reading this book now called showdown and it's mm -hmm. it, it's by Will Haygood and it, and it's uh, basically about the the uh, nomination of, of Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court, and I I seem to think in my mind that I know a little bit about Black history and slavery and that, but man, and reading this book, it, there it just it, there were it, sometimes I, I I have tears in my eyes, sometimes I have rage, and and sometimes I'm just totally. Uh, 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 taken back by uh, the thing, and and I, it's in '79. It, it really m made me stop and ponder about all the the names of or the unnamed people yeah. who gave their lives mm -hmm. to get black folks where they are today. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I I don't know if our young people really understand 
that what pe people had to endure so that they can achieve what they're achieving today. And uh, and I would really recommend this book to, to, to anybody. It's it's called Showdown. It's by w Will Haygood. Uh, he's a, he's a, a columnist for the Washington Post and he, an outstanding writer. Uh, our guest is the great George Raveling. He's the director of global marketing for Nike, but that's just the tip. <laughs> of the iceberg. We're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and uh, I was just thinking we need four more hours. <laughs> four more hours for this. We're talking about 45 minutes. Don't worry, Coach. We won't hold you to that. Yeah, we're not, we're not going to keep you for hours, but you'll definitely come back. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Bill Roden on Sports. Hey everybody, Bill Roden, uh, this is Bill Roden on Sports with uh, great Jamal Murphy, my co-host, and uh, with the legendary George Raveling. Um, you know, George, I, I guess we must have met way back in the day when me and Burwell, God bless his soul, Will Bond, this is, and this may be- Y'all were young guys, youngsters then in, in the profession. Maybe, yeah. Oh yeah, we were all like, you yeah. know, I just got to the time, and it was just such, we, because remember, we go to the coffee shop. Yeah. It'll be you, Coach Thompson, Nolan, Cheney, Nolan, Cheney, Rudy Washington, Rudy that Washington. group. Yeah. And it was such, we were so kind of in awe to be able to, and this started something that would continue like every mm -hmm. year after that, mm -hmm. the Final Four, but it was just so great to be able to be at a casual, casual situation, to be at a coffee shop. And a few times we closed it down. Oh we yeah, like we get out like two in the morning. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I and uh, no question about that. We we uh, we would get so enthralled in in the issues right. and and that that we time time be, be, became borderless for us. Yeah, yeah, and and, and, and it, for us, I mean, I could I'm doing it now. I'm taking out just taking notes. <laughs> we couldn't take out. You couldn't take notes because John, you know, it was, that was the whole thing. It was off the radio. It just started with us mm. four. But man, those were so. And then, but one of the things I loved about that, after I got to know you, you would send us these these note called reading reading with Ravelin. Yes. And it was like all these books, all the clips, all the stuff. Man, and I'm thinking, when did you, when did you start doing that stuff? I, I really started the reading with Ravelin, a concept when I was at uh, uh, at Washington State. I was trying to, uh, to, 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 to look for ways that I could impact the community other than through basketball directly. And, and, uh, and so I started creating reading lists and, and I volunteered to go, this was back in the, in the early 70s, to go to high schools and junior high and grade schools and read to kids and that. And I always remembered something that my grandma had told me one time. She said, son, she said, uh, always try to read as much as you can and, and, and educate yourself through books as much as you can. She said, you know, back in the days of slavery, uh, the white folks used to hide their money inside the books because a lot of them didn't trust the bank, so they would take their money and, and stash it in between the pages of the books and put the books up on the bookshelf. 
and they never worried about it the, uh, being stolen because uh, uh, the slaves couldn't read, so they wouldn't take the books off the shelf. And that, and so uh, I, 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 I quickly learned a lesson that she was trying to teach me that as long as someone can enslave your mind then the rest of the, uh, the body will, 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 will follow and, and, and so I, I made up my mind then that, that no one was ever going to enslave my mind that I was going to try to, to learn as much as I could possibly could and read as much as I, I could and to this very day uh, I, 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 I still embrace that uh, in LA, uh, uh, we have newsstands in almost all the neighborhoods that sell magazines and, and newspapers and so forth. And so there's a newsstand that I go to every morning at 6.30. And I buy, the, I buy the New York Times, the LA Times, the LA Daily News, the Financial Times, the, the, Wall, the Wall Street Journal. I buy about six papers and, and, uh, and I read them every day. And, and I, I feel like it keeps me in a mental frame of mind uh, where I have enough uh, uh, adult awareness that that uh, even if I'm in, in the company of, a, of a, a large group, we don't always have to talk about basketball. That right. I that I that I'm uh, I'm aware of other things, and and I've grown to give a lot of my uh, younger friends a tip. I tell them that if if you're only going to read one paper read the Wall Street Journal, and if you look at the, the, the left side of the, the cover page of the Wall Street Journal, it, it gives you a capsule of all the big stories that are taking place across the globe. And that, and, and, uh, and so, uh, as long as folks can't enslave our minds, we will continue to prosper and grow and learn. And, and so, um, and, and I probably spend $1,500 a month on books that I give away. And as you know, even at this ceremony here in New York, when everybody left, they got a, uh, they got a free book from, uh, by Ryan Holiday mm -hmm, right. uh, called Ego. It was a friend of mine. And so they asked me, uh, you know, did I want to do something special for the people that attended? And I said, yeah, let's give them all a book. And so I called the author, who's a friend of mine, and it's a best-selling book called Ego by Ryan Holiday, and I asked him if he would make arrangements for me to get the book in that, and he did, and we gave him out at the end of the, the, uh, the, the uh, dinner. So how do you feel? There's so much to talk about, but you talked about, you know, um, being a player. We didn't talk that much about your playing career, but I want to talk about the playing career and politics um, because, you know, clearly where you are now and you know, from when I met you, everything was about consciousness, black consciousness. How can you use your podium to make a difference? And you know, from the time you started playing at Villanova until now, the black presence in sports and, and basketball, let's, let's just say that, is, is phenomenal. Right. Yes. I mean, some people could argue that Nike took his major step forward with Tiger Woods, with Michael with, Jordan. With Jordan. Um, saying the Under Armour now with Curry and all. So we've become this titanic, gigantic, phenomenal force but that's primarily making money for other people. So, so my question, first of all, was 
when you were, what was your evolution? First of all, just playing, you were the first black person to play at Villanova, I believe. Yeah, basketball. Uh, and I was the first, uh, you know, the, the, the thing about being the first, a lot of it has to do with historic times. And because uh, I, I was just uh, uh, at the, the, the end of, 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 uh, of segregation and, and uh, at least in the North. And so, uh, and I, I was thinking the other day that if someone were to go back and trace the history of, of black uh, basketball players in college, I think they would find out that Catholic schools probably were the first ones to really open the door, whether it was St. John's or Villanova or Providence or or Canisius or St. Bonnie's with Bob Lanier. Most of the Eastern uh, 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 Catholic schools, Seton Hall, all welcome uh, the black athlete in that, and 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 so uh, at the time the, the the landscape of college athletics was so different than it was now. Um, you, you 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 actually went to college to get an education, and 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 basketball was the was the vehicle that that paid for it. Right. But you you there was no uh, I, I I could not think of any time in my life that I ever thought that you know uh, when I get done I want to play I want to play uh, professional basketball I in the four years I was at Villanova I never had one teammate white or black who had it whose aspirations were uh, to play uh, pro basketball not that there's anything wrong with that but it was uh, just a totally different culture then and and uh, I, I was the first person in my and my family to ever graduate from college, so this was a this was a, a, a huge opportunity for me, and and basketball was the the vehicle that I rode to achieve it. So, how, but how do you feel? When did you start becoming political? Were you ever sort of politicized <coughs> as a player? In other words, in terms of the podium, using you know using basketball as a podium, using basketball as a you know, as sort of a vehicle for for empowerment and you know black empowerment did that come much later did that come you know when you became a coach or did that become you know what what point did you begin to think about that? I, I I think it was it was right toward the end of my tenure at Villanova I, I went to Villanova 56 to 60 and uh, and I I, I was great immensely attracted to King and Baldwin and Malcolm. In fact, in my office at Nike for for most of the time that I've ever worked there, I've always had this picture. It's a collage of, of a headshot of King, Baldwin, and Malcolm X. And, and they've kind of been my heroes, my mentors. And I think those three uh, uh, p persons really created a fire within inside of me an awareness uh, I, I, I saw how people reacted to them uh, they made me uh, 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 more acutely aware of what my responsibilities were to myself and, and, and to and to black folks and and uh, and I and and I recognized that one thing with the, with the three of them, they taught me the power of words mm -hmm. and and how words can move people to do things and, and some uh, 
and, 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 and most times words can move people to do things that they didn't think that they can do. It moves people to do things that they don't want to do. And it creates a greater awareness. And so I, I really started to understand that in a small way, I could do things by just getting out and using my voice to, 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 to motivate people to create awareness, to help people see things that they don't see, help people say right. things that they don't want to say or how to say. Well, it, it, in your time, when you were leaving, when you were at Villanova, your time at Villanova was ending, there wasn't the same type of exploitation uh, in terms of basketball no. and, and, and money being made off of black athletes as there is now. Is that correct? Yes. Well, the the money wasn't wasn't like it is now. I got drafted in the second round by the Philadelphia Warriors. At that time, the word were Warriors, <laughs> and I went down and met with Eddie Gottlieb, who was the owner and GM of the of the Warriors. And and uh, so he he uh, he said, "Well, we we really think you've got a chance to to play in the, uh, with us." And uh, and we want you to come to training camp, and we, we'll we'll pay you seventy five hundred dollars for contract. Right. And and so uh, that was that was that was supposed to be big money in those right, days. Right. But I started working for Sunoco uh, for eight thousand a year as a marketing analyst, and so I, I just and and I, I I just couldn't see myself being a pro player. And so I never pursued it, but the, the things have changed immensely now. The money that's involved uh, 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 in pro basketball today is unthinkable. And, then, and just going back to the, the time change and the way things have changed in terms of even black athletes speaking out, you know, Muhammad Ali obviously just passed. And I wanted to get your feeling on obviously what he meant to you as well, as you mentioned to a few other people, but also the difference now in terms of black athletes speaking out what are the reasons for uh it not being the same as it was then what lessons can today's athlete take from a muhammad ali well to me uh it it, it, it took muhammad ali's death to start to place him in this historic context in this country the first thing about muhammad ali that that probably very few of us truly understood was that he was an intellectual genius. I mean, uh, for a man who never attended a day of college and to be able to put together thought processes the way he did, to debate people who were far more uh, educated than him. And I think he, 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 he uh, was one of the maybe the first black athlete who really understood that that the world was his classroom and he started to, to move outside the boundaries of the United because, because at that time most black folks never got moved outside the neighborhood let alone out, out, outside the country and for him to travel the world and, 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 and to to uh, un, to understand other cultures and to be able to assimilate into those cultures and gain the respect of the people uh, was 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 just truly extraordinary, and um, and I think for him to make the overt demonstration and sacrifice of 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 of, of standing up to the federal government and saying. 
that I do not believe this is a just war and I will not participate in it and to, 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 uh, to be willing to, 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 to die for it if he had to. And, and in some ways, it, 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 there was a temporary death in his, his professional career as an athlete. And it reminds me of something that I, I heard King say to, uh, in one of his speeches, that if a man hasn't found something in life that he, he's willing to die for, then maybe he's not fit to live. And Muhammad Ali found something that he was he was uh, willing to die for, and that was justice mm -hmm. and equality. So, so where, where do you, so I was trying to, I guess the question I was trying to get over the discussion was about where we are with African-American athletes now. We talk about all the time. Um, you know, when I was 17, 18, it was Carlos Smith, mm -hmm. obviously Ali, when I was like in high school. So that began to frame my, my frame of, of what you can do with visibility if you were committed to the struggle whether you were in publishing or sport whatever if you were committed to the, the struggle then it didn't matter where you were so you've been you've been in this athletic thing that's grown into this multi-billion dollar you know a thing to, has, has the money and we like has, has the money co-opted has the money watered down has the money what is the money what has the money done I, I think that as adults, we probably have to share some of the, the blame and responsibility that we haven't uh, taught uh, uh, the young people uh, enough about our history. I think we've we've arrived at a point now where we think uh, uh, we, 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 that there, there is real uh, equality in, in America from a racial standpoint. Um, I, uh, I think Young athletes today have been mesmerized by money and material things and little toys and all of that, and uh, and, and and they 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 become blinded to to just as I said earlier to the unique unique and tremendous uh, sacrifices that that black folks paid to get to pave the way for them to do this, and and I think at some point. They need to, to grapple with the question: What is it that I that I need to give back to society, to our race, or what? How can I create a better pathway for young people coming? Uh, but but so much uh, of 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 athletics today is based around getting my hands on some money so I can have a bunch of cars and then a bunch of houses and all those things and I don't know that that is necessarily uh, 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 bad to want those things but I think you have other responsibilities that come along with your fame and that you can help at some point you, you can't you can't keep taking at some point you got to give back I mean, you, you're involved with Nike, and obviously Nike under. I mean, that's the whole this whole industry, which didn't exist. Yes. When you first, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it was Chuck Taylors. Yes. Or, or <laughs> no, that's what it was. I, I, that's what I wore when I was coming up. with I can. It's funny you bring that up, Bill, because I can remember when I was about 11 years old, and my mom said, 
she asked me what did I want for Christmas, and I said, Mom, I just want a pair of Chuck Taylors, and and, and I don't want nothing else. How, how much and, were those back in the day? Uh, I don't, I, I don't, I don't. <laughs> surely that was as much as they are today. <laughs> right, right. And I remember I used to, I, I used to get a toothbrush, and boy, if I got a little smudge mark on it, I'd go right. in there and, and, and scrub them off, and that, trying to keep them as white as I could. And, and uh, but but uh, this this whole shoe thing has become a a, 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 a culture of uh, of its own. And that uh, I was saying to someone the other day, Bill, I said that you know I wonder if college athletics is going to be able to endure under its present framework because if if television goes the way of the radio. And and and, wow. and 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 the shoe companies decide that they're going to invest differently because because of technology, then uh, they're probably the two biggest contributors to the coffers of, of athletic programs. You take the TV money and the shoe money out of college athletics, and it's over. And now all of a sudden, everybody's operating in, in a deficit. Uh, that's that's a heck of a thought, George. Yeah. Because you're right. You, there's a time when people, and I don't, I don't want to forget the point about the role that, that Nike, Under Armour, mm. plays in, in what we talk about this sort of corruption. Mm. I mean, well, let's, let's talk about that for a minute, but let's, let's take a quick break. And then when our last segment, I'd like to get back to that because I think that's what we're talking about, the role that money and corporations play mm. in, the, in the, what I call the erosion of the, the soul or of black consciousness mm. and all that. Uh, so let's take a break. My guest is... Great George Raveling, Bill Roden on sports, phenomenal conversation, and it's just we could be here for another hour, but I promise we won't be. <laughs> we could be. We'll be back in just two seconds. Here, Chocolat Live in Harlem, USA. Uh, we're back with great George Raveling uh, here at Harlem. Well, we're at Chocolat Restaurant, Harlem, USA, and uh, we're going to feed you, George, if you like to. If you like to eat, <laughs> we we'll, won't just make you talk. We we'll won't make you sing for your supper. We'll actually, you know, Jamal Murphy. I've done that a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, one of the things is, is like, again, you we, you're joking. I said there's so much to talk about, and we only you know we could be here for like another hour. But we, we, you were talking about. I'm really concerned about the. We have all these young brothers, athletes, who can just control stuff. I mean, I'm talking. About the, my my latest thing has been what I call the supply side of the industry, AAU, because we focus on um, being owners of a team. Well, that's a lot. However, you can control the grassroots industry easily. Because I'm looking at numbers. We talk about hoops, hoop mountain, hoop group, hoop group mm-hmm. all these things, and I'm hearing numbers, what it takes, and then what is built on, what is built on, and it's built on. Even if it's a lot of white kids, it's built on the promise of black kids either coming there or start coming. So well, wait a minute, isn't that who we are? We are the industry. How much does it take to put these guys out of business? Because I'm look, looking at who's. These guys, some of them never even played like the guy, the Pump Brothers, or I shouldn't say because I want to interview them, but the, the Pump Brothers and this guy. Said, Wait a minute, guys never even played 
basketball. I've got to the elite camps or doing the film. There's this whole little industry. These guys haven't even picked up a ball. So I'm thinking, you mean the 15th guy on a team? You could get with like 10 guys, you know? In the East Coast, you could have a hoop hoop there. You could, that's an entry point of ownership that these black guys could, could have. What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're right. Uh, we're a little bit like the Arabs. We're sitting on the oil. But unfor- the, the Arabs have figured out how to get it out of the ground. We haven't figured out how to, how to control uh, 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 the, in- the industry that, that, we're, uh, that we have, uh, we're involved in and so many people have made uh, themselves rich out of. I, I, the, the Nike part is 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 I, I think that uh, in in a broad sense, there's part of the Nike thing that's never been untold. First of all, they were the first Fortune 500 company in the history of the United States to ever take a black man and make him the face of their company with, with Michael Jordan, and the, the, Michael took a risk, and they took a risk. Uh, uh, it could the whole thing could have blown up on Nike and and uh, but it didn't and they they picked the right person at the right time to to, to be a marquee. Uh, I would doubt seriously if there's a, another Fortune 500 company in America that has as many uh, African Americans in positions of significant leadership in that corporation as Nike has, and and uh, the. The thing has spilt, maybe the, the scales have, have tipped a little too much in, in, in one direction as it relates to grassroots basketball and that. But comp- you're in an industry that's competitively driven and, and that. But I do think that Nike has, has probably done as the, the, the three entities that I think have done the most for basketball on a global basis in the last 25 years are the NBA, FIBA, and Nike. I think they've had the greatest influence on the game. Um, and, 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 and even though we, we tend to want to confine our discussion, and, and rightfully so, to, to the effect it's had on African Americans, I think today the game has truly become a global game. I mean, if you look at this recent draft, uh, uh, just about two-thirds of the, of, the, of the first 15 picks were non-Americans right. and that. But uh, I, 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 I think that because basketball is played in the summer, that has been the 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 uh, the hole in in the wall, so to speak. What do I mean by that? In the summertime, the players are on what? They're on vacation, and and so there's no 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 entity that governs summer basketball, and that's where this thing all had its origin is in summer basketball, because it's the NC2A has no power over it. The AU has no power over it. Uh, 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 the NBA—it's—it's it's an area that's gone totally ungoverned, and, and and without rules and structure and responsibilities and accountabilities. And so, 
today in the summer, you can just, you can, if someone says, what do you do? I'm a coach. Right. I mean, you don't even have to take a test. Right. <laughs> you can just, just say, I'm a coach. And, and, and so we've had, we've allowed our children to be directed by people who, one, are not qualified, two, don't identify with the same values that we, that we do. And, and as a result, uh, we, 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 unbeknownst, have now created an environment that, 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 that's running out of control. And I had an a, a, a very prominent person at, at the time in AU. Uh, let me stop. And summer basketball, because I this AU thing's become a generic term. Right, right, right. And he said to me, he said, Coach, he said, I'm not doing anything wrong. He said, I, I, there, I, there, uh, there are no rules and regulations that govern me. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And, 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 and so I think that people have seen this as, the, this is where the, most of the problems take place. If, when you really stop and think about it, it, it it's not during the season. It's it, it's it's in the summertime when this thing is totally out of control. I remember I said to Michael Jordan once, I, when his, his his boys were just about to start for high school, I said to I said Michael, are you going to let the boys play on an AAU team? And he said, hell no. And I said, why? He said, he said, I'm not getting involved in that. He said, they play too many games. They don't get enough sleep. They don't practice. All they do is play, pick up a lot of bad habits, don't, don't eat properly, they don't sleep properly, and they're not instructed properly. Why would I want to put my child in that environment? And, 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 and today, you know, if we stop and think about it, if you're a pretty decent player, you play 100 games a year. If you go through the summer basketball, the season, and then basketball. The basketball is a nonstop for these kids today. Right. So they, they easily play 100 games a year. Right. But let me ask you, but it don't, don't the shoe company, don't, I mean the Nike, the Under Armour, the, don't they fuel that? Because, you know, they give money to these, these same kind of guys. Yes. And they, that's what they get there. They'll give them like a budget of 50 grand or 100 grand or whatever. And say, okay, here it is. And ain't no telling then, because I was talking to one dad, you know, then at the end of the year, they're running out of money. They're in Las Vegas, can't get back. Mm -hmm. Can't get back because the guys screwed the money up. But the money is coming. It ain't their money. The money is coming from the, the, you know, Under Armour, Adidas, Nike. Mm -hmm. So doesn't the burden still fall back? To the companies. Well, I don't know if you could say the entire burden f falls back to the shoe companies, but certainly some of it does. But I think that what uh, Nike has tried to do over the years is to, is to balance this with skill development. Uh, uh, They've set certain standards now for who can coach the teams, what kind of deportment they can have. They 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 stopped the, what was basically just a free play, and, and the games. And so now they they put together a league structure, and and, and right. they're trying. Uh, I think they realized that that things had gotten out of control, and so they're they're trying to 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 uh, get things back into a, a, a sensible manner one of the things that I would have would love for Nike to do and I've always felt that this would this was something that would be unique is to sponsor a major endeavor that 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 had nothing to do with basketball competition so what do I mean by that so what if Nike were to sponsor uh, 10 
leadership academies in the summer and geographically uh, dispersed them around the United States. And, and for one week, you would say, let's just say for, for simplicity's sake, 100 would attend this, uh, uh, this leadership academy for a week. And we teach, there's no basketball, nothing. You go, to, you go to each day and we teach you how to be a leader. It's one thing for a coach to say to a player, you should be a leader on this team, but he better be careful because what if the athlete says, I want to be a leader, but teach me how to be a leader. No right. one's ever taught me how to be a leader. So I think it w if we really wanted to do something that would have everlasting benefit, if we were to, st the, the, the start to sponsor leadership academies throughout the United States in the summer, and send out invitations to young people to come and attend at our, at our cost and our expense, and we put together a leadership curriculum, I think we could start to balance this and get young people to understand that uh, the impact that they can have on our social system and the responsibilities that they have to our social system. Yes, sir, that, that one of my, my mentors, Arthur Ashe, and he formed something a long time ago he was the best friend with, with, the, with the guy who delivered our daughter. And he introduced me to him. And so he, he established something called the, the African American Athletic Association. Mm -hmm. And his premise was just that his premise was that in every high school, a lot of times the leaders, the potential leaders in that school are guys from the football or people from the football basketball team. Those are the people that you really need to corral into this leadership loop to teach them how to be leaders because as they go on and they're going to go then to college and all that, you want these people to be your leaders. And so I think that's a great thing. I guess one of the things that I was thinking, I, I, I think it is, I think it is um, thing that when Pharaoh defines your promised land, you'll probably never reach it. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean a lot of times, you know, groups that are headed by white people, these, you know, and they say, oh, hey, Let's do this, and they'll be the catalyst for it. And I'm saying no matter how great they are, the leadership, you know, we, we all came from, I came from a community, you know, it, it was sort of a segregated community where, and, and I'm not necessarily arguing for necessarily segregation, but I am arguing for black power. And where you had the intellects in the community were at a lot of different stratas. And the whole goal was freedom, for us to be free and like the Harriet Tubman thing mm -hmm. to pull each other up. I think when we talk about this erosion in our community, when mm -hmm. money gets involved, it's like, how do we keep ourselves in power? Mm -hmm. Okay, even if I got to put you in power. Mm -hmm. I, and, and so you still have this thing about, oh, we'll set up this or we'll do this. But to me, it has to be, if we're talking about black folks, I mean, we could be talking about, you know, a, a number of other different groups who don't seem to have the same, mm -hmm. same issue. So I guess, I, I guess, I think. Those are great and powerful ideas, but what I'm thinking, it goes back to my conversation about having 80% of the NBA, being 79% of the NFL. What does that really mean? You know, I mean, black people being 80% of the NBA, black folks being 80% of the NFL. What do those numbers mean, really, if it's not about empowering the community, if it's not about what you, what you experienced in 1963 with Dr. King? Okay, that's fine, but now we're in 2016. Has the torch been passed? Has the baton been passed? Or has the money just said, you know what? Listen, you, it's over. I mean, yeah, it's, every it's man for himself. Over. 
I, yeah. I think we, we want to be a little bit careful, though, that we don't paint this with too broad a, a stroke because we don't want to suggest that that none of the athletes are doing some. There are some athletes that 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 are extremely committed to to to, to uh, right. social issues in right. that. Uh, and more than more than we think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was just going to say that, and I think more than we think. It's it's just that uh, we get in the mindset that 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 athletes are greedy and and and, and, and unsophisticated and uneducated and that. But but uh, but that, but that's not true. And and a, and a lot of the athletes. Uh, uh, in their own way, are doing things in their communities and and uh, uh, are are giving back, but it just doesn't it just doesn't seem to gather uh, uh, enough uh, public notice. It, 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 are the numbers uh, uh, significant enough to satisfy what we're talking about? Probably not, but uh, but I, I wouldn't want the public to to. to to, to listen to this and to think that there are not committed athletes out there because there certainly are. And a lot of this is like this individual, they're individually committed, yeah. but really haven't figured out Collective. a way or, you know, haven't figured out the best way to do it or the way to be most productive as a whole. Yeah, because I've seen people, individual people doing great things. Mm. So I've seen an individual guy scoring 54 points a game, but the team's losing. Mm. This guy is like scoring 60 points a game, but the team's losing. Mm. So I've seen a lot of people doing a lot of great things, but it's only when all of a sudden you're scoring 60, but now all of a sudden you bring in a guy who's getting 30 rebounds, and you go from 60 points. Here comes the great Kyle Dudley, my nephew. <laughs> Kyle, George Ravelin. Mm-hmm. He knows all about you. Yeah, we need, we need some, uh, some assists. Yeah, we need, we need, we need, in other words, you've been on teams mm. as a coach. You've been on some team where you have all this talent. This guy's doing that. This guy's doing that. But how the hell are we five and 16? Something happens, and you've been on those teams where all of a sudden you guys are rolling. And it's because, it's because what? What happens? Maybe I should add, what, 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 what happens? And relative to what we're talking about, what happens? I just think, I, I believe that there's an element of trust. I think there's a vision. Uh, there, there's a commitment to, to, to excellence. There's a willingness to, to, to make personal sacrifices for the greater good. I think the, the, these are all things that, that come into play either overtly or covertly. But at the end of the day, uh, you, everybody uh, intentionally or unintentionally embraces these things, and, and, and it's manifested in the way they play and the way they deal with each other. Uh, I, 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 I'm not at this moment really prepared to, 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 to say w- how we can solve this, but there, 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 there's, there's definitely a need for a movement within, within the world of athletics. Uh, that how can we, we, we get the Jim Browns and the Kareem, right. uh, uh, Abdul Jabbar and 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 Muhammad Ali and all those 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 athletes that came together, uh, and. Uh, and stood up for in righteous indignation. Uh, that 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 it, it, it would be the start of something. If we could just 
get some sterling leadership that right. could, could bring people together, articulate the, the, the concerns, and, and more importantly, articulate a vision going forward that we can commit to. What did you think of my idea about the, you know, the, the grassroots, begin to take ownership of the grassroots of this because we were just saying that that's a big part But okay, of so how do you do that? And who, and who shows them the way? And who leads show. the right. movement? That's yeah. Yeah. That's, that's and it goes, it goes <laughs> back but, but to. That, but, yeah. but that, that is a fundamental right. question. Yeah. And it goes, it goes back to what you said earlier yeah. about the older generation has to take some sort of responsibility about not teaching uh, the younger generation the way your gener the way the older generation taught you. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I mean, but think about it. If you go back in time, I mean, I, I'm in my. Uh, I guess what I'm you know, how old I am. But we have different generations here. You know, 70s, 60s, 30s? 40. 40s, 20s, 20s. Okay. Um, Kyle Dudley, assistant coach at Middlebury College in his 20s. So my point is that in each generation, like you take your generation, when they were just like black folks, no matter what kind of Howard you went to or Harvard you went to, you could get killed just as easily because white people, they didn't, they didn't care. Mm -hmm. Okay, kind of the same thing, sort of my generation. So you had this thing that we're kind of all in this together. I don't mm -hmm. care what you think. You know, I don't care how dark you are, how light you are, or whatever. We're kind of in this together. As John Cheney said one time, y'all need to understand one thing. You black forever. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's what his favorite. You know, so but now I think that, you know, people, you know, in other words, we're not unopposed in this stuff. In other words, like, it's just not. I mean, we, we 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 live in one of the most powerful nations on earth, and I think that sometimes they see some people see our unity as an internal security threat. Mm, there's no question about that. You know what I'm saying? That if we would do this, like, let's forget. Let's just talk about sport. Let's just talk about football, basketball. Let's forget going way out there. Let's talk about two areas where we really are dominant in a numerical way. And and Strickland said this the other day at the um, at the at your. Hey, we were talking about this whole AAU thing and, and taking it over. He said, man, it's the weirdest thing, though. Guys don't want to work together because they don't want to – they want to be the big fish in their little group. Like, well, I don't want to be in your group because you – so I'm going to be you – know. so there's this thing that, that like, our, your grandfather, my grandfather, you would have told them 1920 that this was going to be – like, we're going to be this little fledgling thing called the, the pro football. We're going to be 80% of that. We're going to have a black president. We're gonna. They'd be if you told them that on surface. That's all. Oh, let's go back to the field and work because there is a great future. But, but but that's that's part of what I think uh, 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 mesmerizes people and 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 and, and intoxicate. They, they think that we've arrived and there's right. no necessity for right. for for the, the, the to uh, demonstrate like uh, like like King and Malcolm and and Baldwin and those people did. I I think that. And it's mostly driven through money. That 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 uh, we we look look at how we live now. We got cars. We got this. We get. But it's all material things. Right. Some of it. Then yeah. there's the other. Then there's the other group. Right. That, we, I mean, the distance between right. even the black folks who have and the black folks then is probably wider and, than it's ever been. And the problem yeah, is, but, when but but the reality is, what we're talking about is this is this core group of athletes who 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 are, who, who are making money. That's right. what we're really talking. And about. they and they hang out with each yeah, other. And, and they, <laughs> right, and they and they're they're part of the half. Right. That's right. And and, and but the, we, the reason I think this group is so 
important because a lot of these guys have come from the hood. They've come from, it's not like people are born into money and then you never know where like, to struggle. A lot, they, I was listening to the draft and it has become, you know, they ask, uh, what's Buddy Hill? Buddy, uh, tell us, you know, you're, uh, tell us about your struggles. Uh, you were once when five of you were in one room and there's about a few of them like that, you know. And so I'm like, okay. But the point is, they even on the plantation, the athletes had credibility because they had credibility with the people in the field, but they also had credibility with the, with the, with the, with the house people because mm -hmm. you were running for So to me, that's why, it get back to your point about this leadership thing, they could say things and people listen, well, because you were struggling. You did kind of struggle, you know, and now here you're making money, but you've not lost. What, what, what Reggie, why you say you, you know what it's like to feel the wind, mm -hmm. to feel the cold. So I guess... The question is, and for our next segment, we ain't got a next segment. No, well, no, not next, not next. I mean, next show whenever we do no. the show. <laughs> but you know, no, it's just that seems to be the the challenge before us. Yeah, I, I think that that <laughs> when 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 they uh, uh, when Buddy gets to the point where it, it, the struggle is supposedly over, and you've reached you, you now you got your reward. And, and so, so what is there now to to motivate him and to fuel his his fire? Uh, 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 to you know, I guess it, what 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 maybe is is happening that that a lot of us forget how we got to where we are, and we don't apply those same those same. Uh, values those same uh, 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 lessons to, to continue to grow. Right. Well, we, as you mentioned, we had the NBA draft last night. What kind of advice do you give to guys upon being drafted about the new world they're coming into? Well, I, I, if I were to talk to them, uh, I would have tried to. I, I think it's too late then. I think you should have talked to them a long time ago. <laughs> Which I'm sure you do. Yeah, when because you come I, I, I think that uh, one, once they get to the draft and they and, it, you, you, you've missed an opportunity. I think you, you have to start way back when they're in, in seventh and eighth and ninth grade and get them to understand the value of education. I think education is more important to, in, in the lives of those people that got drafted uh, yesterday right. than it ever was. Right. Getting the money is the easiest part. Keeping it and multiplying is the difficult part. Most of these, these young people are going to have to put their, their money and their careers in the hands of somebody who just walked into their life in the last 24 months, and 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 they and they've got to, to try. They can't even sit in the business meeting and ask intelligent questions because they don't even know the the language of the business world and that. So someone tells them, uh, here's here's what how we believe you should you should uh, invest your money, utilize your money, spend your money, and and so. It's no wonder that the statistics show that within seven years after a player's done with his professional career, he's broke, because because he was he didn't control his destiny. He he was paying someone else to control his destiny, and they and they were they were acting in their best interest, not in right. his best interest. Right, right. And they're not going to try to teach him the right thing because they if he learns the right thing, he don't need them. Right. Now they don't have a job, so it, it, it's 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 a difficult environment. It's like how we they teach us to read. Right. Listen, our, our guest has been the great George Raveling. Uh, we could do this for another hour, but we promise that we won't. Mm -hmm. uh, but next time you're on the 
East Coast or next time on the West Coast. I'll, we got to do I'll part. Be, I'll be there. Part, part I'll two. I'll be there. Hey, uh, George, man, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. This and and uh, I wish I, I enjoyed talking, and I agree with you. We could we could go on for two more hours and cover a lot of things. We haven't even talked name names yet. We haven't even got <laughs> right, right. I mean, we have drinks. We have, the drinks, we, we have the drinks right, on the way. Right. Uh, again, George, thanks so much, Jamal, as usual. And we will back be back next week with another version of Bill Rodner Sports. And Jamal, you got instructions, right? How we can continue to grow our audience so we can show people we have an audience. Yeah, as always, uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes or SoundCloud or any other uh, vehicle, rate us, like us, Love us, comment in the comment section. That, that helps the growth of the program. Follow us on Twitter at BrosPod. Bill Roden on Sports is an acronym. Uh, follow us at BrosPod on Twitter, Instagram, uh, that's a, and Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. That's about it. And Black Power's okay. We love everybody. <laughs> yeah. Okay. See you guys. Yeah, don't, get, don't get scared by that. Don't thing. get scared by it. It's good. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> all right. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.